Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, a lot of late-breaking news to sort of bat around today. A lot of late-breaking news to bat around today. Yes, Amber. Um, I wanted to first uh, start with an update uh, on our friend Congressman Duncan Hunter, the Republican from California. Sure. Known better on this show, listeners of this show, is the congressman who is charged with uh, misappropriating election funds. Right. He's also spending the, the vaping, the vaping uh, congressman. Yes, he, yes, thank you, Bill. He is the vaping congressman. Right. Uh, he was uh, uh, charged by federal prosecutors to be using his election funds for personal expenses, ranging from lavish Italian trips to like going to the quick stop for some beer and cigarettes or something. Right. But no vape juice. No vape juice. No, no, no. Right. We, we we went through the indictment. It's the yep. whole thing. Uh, anyway, that's proceeding along in California federal court. The development that we want to talk about, just up, just very briefly, his wife, uh, Margaret Hunter, uh, pled guilty to conspiracy just today with prosecutors and is cooperating with them against oh. her own husband. She's dunking on Hunter. She's dunking on Hunter. <laughs> She's hunting for Duncan, as you say. I mean, um, I wonder if Duncan just, will go nuts. <laughs> it's just really, it's. I can't imagine what uh, what I'd have to be facing to be like, you know what? I'm going to flip and I'm going to tell everything Andrew ever did. What about three to five? <laughs> it's hard. I don't Four know. Four to six? I mean, it is a question of where's the line of true going. love. I'm not sure. We were, I'm not sure where it is. I think it's somewhere in that range. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for that one. Um, yeah, uh, Hunter put out a statement. He said it was a shame that they had to bludgeon her into submission. Uh, he Oof. still intends to go to trial, so... Uh, we'll check back in on that when that's appropriate. But yeah. uh, the other thing, um, a little more serious news, uh, there was a somewhat obscure government watchdog agency um, that became considerably less obscure in the last couple of minutes um, that ch- uh, charged Kellyanne Conway, the White House advisor Kellyanne Conway, with violating something called the Hatch Act yep. and recommending that Donald Trump remove her, fire her from her position at to the White clear, House. To be clear, they weren't. These were not criminal charges. No, 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 no. This is a government watchdog agency. It's called the Office of the Special Counsel. Correct. Not to be confused with the Special Counsel's Office. This has nothing to do with Robert (laughs) Mueller. I can't imagine why anyone would confuse those. A little bit of a party planning committee, committee to to plan parties situation going on. (laughs) So anyway, the Office of the Special Counsel is tasked with enforcing something called the Hatch Act. This is a law from 1939 that basically bars federal government employees from engaging in uh, campaign politics. So you're just like, as, as a civil servant, your job is to serve the public, not be out here on the stump or uh, bashing your, uh, you know, the, the, the president's right. political opponents and things like that. Um, Kellyanne Conway has gotten a rebuke uh, from this office before. Uh, last year, she went on TV and was weighing in on the special uh, Alabama Senate uh, election. Mm-hmm. And she got sort of a finger wag from yeah. the OSC at that time. For vi- they, they said, this is likely a violation of the Hatch Act. Please don't do this again. Um, she went. She has been making the rounds on TV again, weighing in on the 2020 Democratic candidates. Um, this combined with sort of her history with the law was enough for the agency to say that sort of she is a repeat offender and she clearly is not taking this very seriously. And they called for her to be fired. Um, and it's a little bit interesting. Um, the White House. Um, it wasn't clear whether or not this would become like a capital T thing. The White House quickly put out a statement saying. Um, we're not going to fire her. We find this to be a flawed interpretation of the law. And then I thought it would kind of end there. But then mere minutes before I stepped into the booth here, uh, the White House uh, uh, the White House counsel sent uh, like an 11-page memo to the OSC hmm. oh. basically saying the way that you have interpreted this is 
unconstitutional. You're abridging federal employees' rights to exercise free speech and things like that. And they have this is a you know the OSC is a watchdog agency, and in their memo, the White House asked them to hand over a bunch of their documents that led them to this. So I mean, I don't know how. We'll, we'll we'll maybe sort of have to keep tabs on how much of a thing it becomes, but it's Offense like defense is defense as always. Well, and some and not now like who's watching the watchdog now? They're like, right. well, we want to know more about how you're enforcing. The <laughs> I feel like this story is another one in this um, Trump era where I didn't know a lot about what emoluments were before he became president. I didn't know much about the Hatch Act. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning Farah. so many things. Yeah, yeah Farah, exactly. That's another one. Yeah, Farah. Well, the Hatch. Some would tell you. Some people, you know, have been saying, you know, that, that the Hatch Act almost is harkens back to a more quaint time where it was easier to draw lines between governing and campaigning sure. when a lot of that is sort of one hand washing the other now. Um, but yeah, uh, that's sort of the late breaking news. There's lots of other stuff to talk about today. Well, you know, the later on today, we are going to talk about something that I think everyone will really identify with. It's not obscure at all. It's robocalls. We're going to have Kelsey Griffiths on the show. We've all been there. Uh, we Wait, I got to go. I'm getting a robocall. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to have Kelsey Griffiths on the show. She's our senior telecom reporter to talk about moves the FCC is making to try to curb those. Um, but before we get to her... I want to take us back to another big story that we've covered on the show, Varsity Blues. Yeah, the Varsity Blues. So for people that maybe don't remember the the code name of that scandal, it's the one where wealthy parents like Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin paid to either fake athletic credentials or cheat on entrance exams, um, paid to have those things happen for their kids to get into various elite colleges. Mm-hmm. So, so what's going on? Did they finally rope in Patricia Heaton over here? <laughs> Not yet. Su- Suzanne Summers? Um, so a couple things. One real quick one. We had the very first sentencing in the scandal. It was um, a Stanford uh, former sailing coach. He ended up getting... Um, um, technically, he was sentenced to one day in prison, but it was deemed served, and he got some, you know, home confinement and and agreed to pay some restitution. A Stanford sailing coach. Yeah, um, the prosecutors, <laughs> the prose- prosecutors pushed really hard to actually have him serve some real time here, but the judge, after weighing what was going on, basically said, uh, and this actually not basically, this is a quote said. I have not heard of anyone who is less culpable. So it mm. seems like there's still a lot of bigger fish to fry in this this uns, this huge sprawling yeah, scandal. Yeah, right. Well, and there were extensive wiretaps and transcripts right. for them to go over. So yeah. Well, what what else so is going on? If you remember, there was one big sort of charging document that included tons of parents who allegedly participated in these various schemes to get their kids into schools, and it was all presented as one big conspiracy. Yes. So with such a long list of prominent clients, obviously. Law firms were quick to sign them up to represent a bunch of these people. Oh yeah, it was and it was something of an arms race for the it, Boston white shoe law firms so, with cl- clients with money to burn. Probably yeah, a protracted legal right. process going on. And so yeah. a lot of these big firms ended up with a mix of who they're representing. Sometimes various parties, mm-hmm. and that's led to potential problems. Over the last week or two, we've started to see motions in court about how some of these big law firms may have conflicts in representing more than one person. So n- name some names. Who are we talking? What kind of what what firms are we talking about getting in this? As Alex put it, this arms race for the uh, the rich parent demo. All the <laughs> ones people have heard of. So federal prosecutors flagged several potential conflicts. It was firms like Boyce Schiller, Latham and Watkins, Nixon Peabody, Ropes and Gray, big, well known yeah, firms. Yeah. Um, one example: Latham represents Lori Laughlin, and also her husband, 
Massimo Giuliani. He's a, the fashion designer guy. The, the um, target that's fashionista right, of, impresario. Of yes. Um, so they are charged separately, but they're being both being represented. And then on top of that, Latham represents the University of South Southern California. Yeah. That's the school that the couple's charged with defrauding. Mm-hmm. So you can see why prosecutors were maybe a bit concerned. So Fed said that USC might have civil disputes with Laughlin or, um, or her husband in the future, but Latham says that's very speculative. I mean, we just don't know. We're at the criminal stage now. Mm-hmm. Nothing's been filed. Um, and even if it did get filed, they've already said they wouldn't represent Laughlin or um, Massimo Giannulli anymore. They yeah. would stick with USC. And you got to think that this was a thing that these firms, these firms are very sophisticated actors. You got to think that they thought this, these conflicts through themselves before that they took these, these cases. That's what I actually thought was really interesting about um, even bringing this up to talk about it on the show, that we got details about how firms do handle conflicts mm-hmm. because conflicts like this do spring up. This is really high profile, this this scandal, but it happens all the time. So the judge in, in the case has already decided that Boy Schiller can keep representing two different defendants who have really different postures and where the case is right now. One of the two is cooperating with the government and may be called to testify against the other one. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's a very clear and splashy sort of conflict there. Yeah. Yes. But the firm had assured the court, and the court bought into it, that they'd gone to really great lengths to keep the teams representing the parents. Um, the firewall, which you always hear about. That's right. Yes. That they tried really hard to keep them totally separate. So here's the kind of things they did. They've locked down the files for each client in the firm's computer system so attorneys and staff can only access files for their own client. And then they went a step further and emailed the entire firm and said, hey, here's the outlined separation to keep this completely right. you know, arm's length between the two. You guys can't even order lunch from the same place. <laughs> That's right. okay? It also mitigates the concerns to a certain extent when if both clients are obviously consenting to this. That's that, right. You know, and that it's was not the, like that makes yeah. It's not like they're they're being hoodwinked in it. That's right. right. And that was the other thing that the of the two clients, they both know about the other one and the one who's um, cooperating um, has potentially less on the line here. So the one who's uh, pled not guilty was fully infer- informed that the firm has the other client who was cooperating with the government and sort of knows and waived that conflict. So that's how they got the all clear there. We'll see if it holds until the company Christmas party. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows that uh, the boys' Schiller Christmas parties tend to get tend to get lit. That's what I heard. I mean, right. that that that's all hearsay right. and gossip. Maybe well, it's not best to go down that road. Transitioning yes. from uh, a classic late '90s film, Varsity Blues, to uh, you know a 1970s rock anthem. Yeah, right. Uh, we're going to talk about Stairway to Heaven again. Yes, and as we wind down down the road. So uh, more than. Checks paper. Let's check the forty-seven years after the song came out, we're headed back for another round of uh, legal battles over over uh, a, a weird lawsuit that claims that Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, stole the intro to "Stairway to Heaven" from a sort of weird, weird song from from the nineteen sixties. I feel like every time we do one of these, it's just a way to play classic rock songs that I don't like. Yeah, I mean, oh my I don't, God, are we gonna are we gonna get into like more takery over your oh right? And we really your, dislike your, meatloaf, right? Yeah, your, yeah, your opinions over empirically right, so wonderful I, songs. I hate right. meatloaf. Okay, I only I I respect the Led Zeppelin. Uh, uh, I don't I just don't actually like it. 
the, the Led Zeppelin is like a very <laughs> mom thing if you need to say. <laughs> okay, sorry. Intentionally okay. so. So it is, so yeah, it is kind of crazy. Like you say, it's one of the most prolific uh, uh, rock songs yeah. in, in recorded history. And now like there are lingering questions to this day about its about its originality or whatever. What lay down the sort of broad strokes here? So back in 2014, there was this dude, um, well, it's the, uh, the trustee of a guy named Randy California, who was the front man of a band called uh, Spirit. And this lawsuit that he filed, uh, it claims that the opening part of Stairway was sort of the bum, 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 that that was copied from a 1967 song by Spirit called Taurus. Um, and just to be clear, the, the, the interesting wrinkle here is not that the lawsuit was filed like 40 years later, as much as I stressed that at the beginning, because yeah. that is weird. But, um, you know, there is no there's sort of a rolling statute of limitations. Yes. Copyright and they're still selling records. You're still allowed to sue. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so the songs do sound pretty similar. And I think we have uh, a recording. We'll go with um, the spirit song first. Exhibit A. Um, I mean, I, sounds it pretty familiar. Sounds really familiar. To yeah. Me. So just to refresh everyone, we'll play the uh, song you've heard a thousand times: Led Zeppelin's "Stairway to Heaven." All right. So, did Randy California win? <laughs> It's just a good name, by the way. It Randy sure California. I was going to say, yeah. is, are, are the Red Hot Chili? Is he going to sue the Red Hot Chili Peppers for doing Danny California? Because <laughs> this should. is a whole other thing. It's the next suit. Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so he sued in your, 2014. Yeah, yeah, and to answer your question, no, he did not win. Um, the basic counterargument from the band, sort of the gist of it, is that, um, yeah, the songs sound that element of the song sounds pretty familiar, but um, the the thing that's similar is this very basic, very commonplace element of music that can't be protected by copyright law. That it's this arpeggio that you just it. You're climbing up and down the scale. A yeah, that bit. that's not uh -huh. a, that's not the kind of uh, creative expression that you right. can lock up for ninety years under copyright law. Is their argument? Um, in 2016, jurors agreed with that argument. Um, it was a pretty star-studded trial uh, over the song and jurors ultimately found that the two songs were not substantially similar because they you know that argument was made that yeah they they sound similar but the the actual similarities are not covered by copyright law um that could have been the end of the road but in um last september the the ninth circuit overturned that verdict a federal appeals court overturned that verdict um they said that they didn't say that it was wrong. They just said that the judge gave some improper instructions okay. on the way that you sort of weed those two things, the protectable versus the unprotectable, out, and that that could have tainted what the jury said. So they sent it back, and we were we were on the road to a new trial. We were on the road to a new trial. So do we just – what happened? Well said. What happened on the way to the courthouse? So um, the this week, the big news was that the, the full en banc – uh, court, the meaning a bigger panel of the court, basically all of all the of judges, um, agreed to redo the entire case at the appeals court. So um, both sides had asked the court to rehear it. For California, for the accusers, um, it was more of like a little quibble. It was, you know, the, it was this, it comes up in music lawsuits a lot over old songs, which is, um, does your copyright cover 
the sort of the bare bones sheet music that you filed with the copyright office, yeah. which is just like a series of notes. Yeah. Or does it cover, you know, the song, the expression? The, yeah, of it. exactly. Mm-hmm. And it, it gets into really complicated questions, but it's a really big deal for those kind of cases. Yeah. Um, it's coming up right now in another case in New York dealing with Ed Sheeran because yeah. it comes into all sorts of questions about what you can play for jurors, whether or not you yeah. can play the, the like recorded version. So they wanted the court to redo that aspect of the ruling. But the real like, Big criticism obviously came from Zeppelin because they had won and the the court overturned the verdict in their favor. Yeah. Um, they basically say that look, this this ruling will it it muddies the way that you weigh these questions and it it it's going to cause all sorts of confusion among lower courts about like, you know, what aspects of music are protectable and can you can sue over and what aspects are just like commonplace public domain pieces of music that that anyone can use. This reminds me of so many other things. Um, some other music stuff that I'll get you to explain. But the other thing it kind of reminds me of is when we talked on this very show about people suing about various dance steps that Fortnite was using. Totally. And it's kind of the same question of like, what's the the part that's so common that it's public domain yeah. versus what's the broader creative expression that is covered by copyright? Well, it's a it's a it's a question that I mean, if you really want to boil down copyright law, the the, the tension in every case is what can everyone say? What can everyone yep. use? What What is free for everyone? And what is this sort of time-limited monopoly that we're granting to people? And those sure. two things obviously come into tension with each other. Mm-hmm. And it, it, especially in terms of the music context, um, it's 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 a thing. It's basically the exact same issue that was at play in that really big lawsuit filed by Marvin Gaye's kids mm-hmm. over or, um, uh, Robin Thicke and Pharrell's uh, Blurred Lines. Yeah. So it's a it's a really, really big question, this idea of, you know, when it comes to music, because obviously music builds on on genre and it takes aspects. And but but unlike, you know, a visual medium or writing or anything else, it is it is more limited in terms of the elements of it that you can combine and put into new songs. So the question in that lawsuit and and at play here is where does, you know, inspiration or um, homage or, you know, just playing the standards of a genre sure where does that line cut off and become copying and stealing and infringement and all these scary words that that you know it, you're not allowed to do yeah. so since we already had that Marvin Gaye uh, kids and and Robin Thicke and Pharrell suit I think it's important to point out that we didn't get great answers out of that one we did not and because that was also a jury verdict yeah. um, in favor of Marvin Gaye's kids and that verdict basically punted it said look we're going to affirm the verdict uh in favor against robin thick and pharrell but we like it, it, it was consciously narrow they said yeah. we're just affirming the verdict don't read this any further um so what we have here is the full on banc ninth circuit which is i don't think anyone needs to tell anyone probably one of one of the two really important copyright circuits yeah yep. um it taking taking this case on banc is very rare and it allows for the court to override its own precedent they can essentially make new law when they do that so um it'll be a really interesting thing to see what they say about those big sort of almost philosophical questions about copyright law it'll be really important and um and a big deal when they eventually issue that ruling Today we're talking about robocalls. 
I feel like over the last few years, so many have hit my cell phone. I basically ignore all my calls now. <laughs> and the stats back it up. Americans received 47.8 billion robocalls last year, up more than 50% from the year before, and they're surging again this year. They come from fake numbers, they try to scam you, and they make it nearly impossible to answer your cell phone. A plan of attack seems to finally be materializing from regulators, industry players, and lawmakers, but will it work? Here to discuss this complex issue is Kelsey Griffiths, our senior telecom reporter. Hi, Kelsey. Nice to have you today. Hi, Amber. Thanks so much for uh, having me call in from D.C. Uh, we're going to talk about something nobody likes, uh, robocalls. Um, I actually got one right before we started recording. It was no. awesome. I took a screenshot of it. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, uh, that just proves the point. We're all getting them all the time. Um, but Kelsey, can you tell us a little bit about how big this problem is? Absolutely, Amber. So uh, just speaking from personal experience, I've had callers calling my cell phone in the middle of trying to cover a story and they're spoofing my own number. So it looks like my own phone number is calling my phone and <laughs> right. interrupting my audio recording. So I can personally attest this is affecting lots of people on many levels, including me and interrupting my workday. Uh, the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, also likes to talk about this issue as a consumer and says that he constantly gets robocalled and he wants to figure out a way to stop the uh, calls from coming into his phone. So I think people at all levels recognize that this is a problem. Yeah. Um, the FCC has said that this is their top consumer complaint. They actually received 232,000 robocall complaints from consumers last year. That's so many. And that had almost doubled since 2017. So people are realizing that this is more and more of a problem. And the FCC, as the primary regulator over this area, is really uh, feeling the squeeze to get this sorted out once and for all. And we mentioned earlier that 47 billion calls that came in last year. Is there any other data about just how big of a problem this is beyond just the, the FCC complaints? Absolutely. So, uh, some recent data from a call blocking app called Umail shows that people got almost 5 billion robocalls last month alone. <laughs> There's a lot of robocalls. Um, if you break it down further, the volume of robocalls is about 152.9 million robocalls per day. And that breaks down into about 1,700 robocalls per second. That's that's nice so, and manageable. It's pretty easy. Yeah. This explains why I just don't <laughs> answer calls on my phone anymore. And now I feel super justified yeah. in that response. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about um, are actual like scams. And, and uh, you talked about getting your own phone number calling you. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what we're dealing with here? Are they, are they all scam calls? Is it... How does spoofing work? Like just sort of some top line stuff so people know sort of what we're getting into here. Sure thing. So that, that's a great question because people in the highest levels of Congress and government agencies are still asking these very basic questions themselves. There's still a lot of confusion about what constitutes a robocall, what constitutes an, an, an unwanted call, um, and really what can the government do to crack down on these different categories? So scams make up almost half of all robocall traffic. Uh, there are some other big categories for robocalls as well. They can be reminders, payment alerts, and telemarketing calls. So it's pretty clear from the outset that the biggest problem that everyone has is with these 
weird, scummy, scammy feeling calls that you just really don't want to get. So I think that's where most of the attention has been lately. Yeah, they're like telling you that you're you're you like you have criminal charges against you, oh, sure. or um, you know, trying to trick you into giving your social security number There's away. Also, I've read recently about ones that it'll be. Um, a number you don't recognize, and so you call it back, and suddenly it starts charging you per minute yeah. in the you know the call you've made back. Those are called one ring scams, yeah. and they often originate overseas or in in areas that um, can allow the carrier to charge you very high prices for calling that number back. So that's one of the uh, types of scams that regulators are looking to crack down on right now. Now, the call that I referenced earlier was that, that you know, it, it came in from a number that was the same first few digits as my actual phone number. And that's that's spoofing, right? Could you sort of walk us through, you know, what that is and, you know, what that is in this problem? Yeah. So spoofing is one of the most common types of robocall scams where it makes the number that's calling you look like it's coming from a neighbor or from another number that you would be inclined to pick up. Yeah. Um, a classic example of this is the IRS spoofing scam, where it actually masks the real number of the IRS and makes you think that you owe the government money or tricks you into giving information away. So uh, the government has taken some steps to really crack down on that scam. So hopefully we won't be seeing those as much. But yeah. The problem well, of spoofing still remains live. Yeah, I think that's a good place to take us to sort of the next, you know, the next phase of this conversation, which is talking about what has been done or what can be done to fix it. And, you know, as I was digging into sort of researching this story, I, a thing I didn't really understand was that a lot of I mean, most of this stuff is already sort of in a technical sense illegal to do. Right. And it's 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 more been a big growth in in like technology, allowing it to to happen and to get away with it. Totally. This is primarily a technical challenge. And I think one of the things that has really allowed robocalling scams to grow over the last few years is the fact that the technology is so cheap. Uh, if you just buy a computer and a little bit of software, you can run these massive robocalling operations from your home or from a small business. So it becomes really hard to track down the bad actors when they become so mobile. And if you're spoofing the numbers, there's no, you know, it, what you're doing is against the law, but there's no qu quick and easy way to sort of go after that person, right? You, you can't star 69 your way back to that person like <laughs> yeah. you could in the good old days. Yeah. Exactly. Things have gotten so much more complicated in the age of mobile phones and, and the internet and all of that. So one of the main things that regulators have been grappling with is trying to sort out the categories of calls that can be legally blocked and the types of calls that can be easily targeted to sort of cut down on all this illegitimate traffic we're getting on our phones. Obviously, the biggest category are scam calls, but when you look a little bit closer, it's kind of hard to decipher which calls carriers should be allowed to block um, before they reach your phone at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, For how example, are they? Yeah, Kelsey, tell us more. How are they trying to figure out like what's a legitimate like telemarketer that's allowed to call you versus ones that are spoofing numbers in our scam? Sure. So some of the easiest markers of scams are misusing phone numbers, using illegal area codes, uh, using numbers that aren't assigned to any carrier. So there are a lot of markers to show uh, carriers that this particular call is spam. But there are some kind of gray areas that regulators are still trying to figure out how to deal with. So let's say you sign up for reminders from your pharmacy and you're 
pharmacy is using an auto dialing program to send you a short automated message to say, hey, your prescription is ready. And that's the sort of call that could potentially trigger um, call blocking. And that's something that regulators want to make sure they don't prevent you from getting. Okay, so that kind of leads us into what actually happened this week and why we have you on the show to talk about it. Um, The FCC actually took a vote on uh, one measure, one action that carriers could take to deal with these robocalls. Tell us what happened. Yes, so the FCC had a blockbuster vote uh, last week. They ended up voting to allow carriers to start blocking calls that they suspect to be scams or unwanted calls on a default basis. So previously, carriers could block calls um, only if you as the consumer opted into their call blocking technology. But they had a lot of problems with engagement. A lot of people didn't know about the programs. A lot of people wouldn't take the steps necessary to opt in. So I had no idea, Kelsey. I've just been ignoring my calls all this time. I I didn't even know that was an option. Exactly. I still wouldn't know how to opt in because for being a telecom reporter, I'm very technologically uh, disadvantaged. So So now they can do it automatically on behalf of their customers. Exactly. So that actually ruffled some feathers because, believe it or not, there is a pro-robocall lobby out there. (laughs) There's a lobby for everything. Um, What what does the pro-robocall lobby say about this? I mean, it, it seems really hard to be like, you know, those scammers should just be able to call whoever. Right. Right. So it's kind of an interesting argument. Um, A lot of these pro-robocall arguments are coming from healthcare companies, pharmacies, debt collectors, and credit unions. So people in the health and financial services sectors. And these groups use auto dialers to reach a lot of customers or potential customers. So they say, hey, FCC, you shouldn't block the unwanted calls because the unwanted calls are still legal and maybe it's information that people don't necessarily want but they need. So that's a question that the FCC is going to have to deal with down the road. Um, Why this came up in this debate last week is because uh, the FCC just gave carriers pretty broad authority to block robocalls or suspected robocalls and these financial services companies are worried that their calls will sort of get caught up in this uh, really broad dragnet. And there's also some bills floating around in Congress, right? Some beyond just the FCC that there's, you know, because I'm sure legislators are hearing about this too. Um, You know, what's, what is Congress sort of looking to do? Yeah. So the biggest thing on the table in Congress right now is the Trace Act. And this bill would basically, um, force carriers to implement some authentication technology to make it easier to weed out spam um, and spoofed calls. And it would um, also give the FCC more authority to target more callers and raise fines that the FCC can charge on bad actors. And that's the thing I think that, you know, um, that, that you see a lot when you're reading about this is that the, the the cell phone companies themselves have been uh, rolling out this like authentication process, but it's just taken a long time to to put in place. And, and some of the regulatory stuff would sort of nudge them toward really getting it in place, right? Exactly right. This would just be more fuel to that fire for the FCC and for industry to kind of work together to put these solutions in place. Kelsey, thanks a lot for bringing all of this to us. It seems like there's going to be a lot more to watch here, but hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe I'll get to answer my phone again in the future. (laughs) 
Maybe so. I think that's a worthy goal. We'd like to end our show with something offbeat. And Bill, I think you have a good one for us this week. Yeah, we're talking about Selena and Barnes, everyone's favorite uh, injury attorneys here in New York sure. City. A fixture and, of the New York uh, TV scene. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows the song, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Selena and Barnes, injury attorneys, 800-888-8888. Don't wait, call eight. Call so we, eight like your life depends on it. <laughs> so we all know Salino and Barnes. Sure. So I can't remember if we talked about it on the show, but back in 2017, yeah. say it ain't so, Salino and Barnes started splitting up. That's really sad. I mean, I mean, like I mean a, even even the Beatles broke up. So, you know. Felt like all of New York's parents were getting divorced. Very much so. And uh, But so now, last week, um, Ross Salino's uh, wife and daughter... Uh, we're hit with a trademark infringement lawsuit from the old firm because they have set up a new firm called Salino and Salino LLP. Well, oh, this sounds right. like the potential for some confusion in the marketplace, Bill. Not to not to Great. throw around terms that I don't quite understand the way, the way you do. <laughs> You're you you really nailed that. Okay, cool. Thanks. I'm very proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. So now we've got this situation where. Um, Stephen Barnes, on behalf of the continuing to exist firm, because the the uh-huh. lawsuit from yeah. splitting up the firm is pending, um, he filed this lawsuit against Salino's wife Anna Marie and their daughters Anne Marie and Gina, saying that this new name of this firm is going to confuse people into um, rather than calling eight, they will uh, they'll call the new the new Salino firm, right. which is also going they to could be a call personal seven, injury firm. They could call five. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's a it's a hornet's nest of, of legal liability. And I mean, also to, to, everyone in that family is a lawyer. Completely. Yeah, I love that. A little Salino legal empire yeah. brewing in, in in Manhattan. To be clear, we ninety five percent of why we chose to, to talk about this story is so that we could play the jingle. But and sing it together. And, and, and there's some just, interesting stuff here. Uh you know, under New York State law, you well, this is the the, the defense of the Salino and Salino people is that under state ethics rules, state bar rules, you need to use your name in law firms. Like the, yeah. that there's some requirement um to to have your name involved. On the flip side, there's no like trademark right to there's no right to use your name if your name is also a trademark like yeah. mm-hmm. if you run like if if your name is like Fred McDonald like you're not allowed to open up a chain of burger restaurants called McDonald's like that's not <laughs> yes. how it works like you don't have this like did you like, just cheat recap code. part of the plot of um, coming to America yes that's basically <laughs> wow what just yeah. happened there <laughs> nice um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's I, there's not a whole lot else to say other than I'm excited for the Salino and Salino commercials. Yeah, they're they're, they're suing under the too many Salinos doctrine. And I, uh, <laughs> Salino I, I, and Salino, definitely presidential injury attorneys. This one doesn't make as much sense. <laughs> there you go, guys. That seems like as good a place as any to end it with some great outro music. Thanks for that, Bill. Happy to uh, sing along for everybody. And Alex, I'll see you next week, and maybe there will be more singing. We don't know. Uh, one can hope. Yes. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Kelsey Griffiths, and our contributing reporters, Sam Reisman, Chris Villani, Aaron Leibowitz, and Ryan Boyson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. The show is available on all the major podcast platforms. We'd love it if you subscribe and also leave us a written review. It really does help other people find us. 
If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.